This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Radio Show, which can be heard on Community Radio 3CR in Melbourne and Skid Row in Sydney. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. We'd like to pay our respects to elders past and present and pay tribute to the decades-long legacy of Aboriginal fights for land rights and against the destructive mining projects that are fueling climate change. In particular, we acknowledge the Wangan and Jagalingu cultural custodians and their ongoing opposition to coal mining on their lands in central Queensland, and to the Gomorrah traditional custodians continuing opposition to coal and gas on their land in New South Wales. It is vital at this late stage in history that we all learn to care for country. It will always be Aboriginal land, and now is our time to all stand up for and protect it. Change is hard. The global energy transition is going to be hard. Not dealing with it will be infinitely worse. These are the words of Dr. Saul Griffiths. He goes on, I am aware that by supporting the Illawarra offshore wind energy zone, I will be in conflict with my neighbours, but I am shocked at the level of misinformation peddled by opponents. Tonight's show is called Good for the Gong. It brings you the voices of ex-coal miner Daryl Best, member of Re Rewiring Australia, Kristen MacDonald, and union rep for the NTEU at Wollongong University, Martin Cubby. Martin is also a dad, and here's what climate activism looks like in a family. They get it. They understand why we often spend weekends out, you know, doing actions and meeting politicians and doing all the things that, that we do as climate activists. They get dragged along to meetings that they don't want to be in. And, but they also understand that it's a, a big issue. And I would hope that they're proud that we're doing something rather than, you know, 95% of people who, who don't. I don't know. I'm, I'm keen to ask them when they're 21 what they, they thought about what we were doing when they were sort of 10 and 12. So... Um, and hopefully we've made some, some real progress by then. Kristen says overseas the electrification and retrofitting of houses is made easier. I know Ireland, for instance, has gone down this route of the actual, the federal government there is funding one-stop shops um, to oh. essentially do what you're saying, to provide support for households um, yeah. to retrofit their houses. These people are part of an alliance of groups called Good for the Gong, and they are trying to speed up the transition from coal mines and coal-fired steelworks of the present in Wollongong and Port Kembla to the clean energy and green steel jobs of the future. For now, listen up for the best of civic-minded, climate-conscious Wollongong. Daryl Best is with us from Wollongong, New South Wales. He is an ex-coal miner. Welcome, Daryl. Would you like to describe what it's like working underground in an Illawarra coal mine? 
Oh, yes. Um, thank you, Vivian. Um, it's it's different. It's different to most other jobs that you might actually wish to go and do. For a start, you have to go into the bowels of the earth, which is a bit of a, an unusual thing anyway, um, uh, which also means that you're apart from everything else. You know, if you go and work in other jobs, you know, you might be working in a shop or you might be somewhere else and you interact with people. But when you go underground, you just interact with well, the other people who were odd enough to accept this as a job and um yeah so it's it's really good it's it's um there's great com camaraderie in working in coal mines you have to work as a team if if people in in the team aren't working properly you can that can result in, in injury like or death or all manner of things um, it means that you can be totally inefficient too if they're not working. So you really have to work together. So there is a lot of banter in coal mines. So if you're possibly um, a touch delicate, <laughs> that's probably not the job for you. Um, but there's also a lot of encouragement in it. But it is dirty, dusty, dangerous, you know, all those things. It's um, And it's wet and um, it can be really hot, really cold, depending on where you are. Um, but it it's it, it's a good job. I wouldn't necessarily have ever wanted any of my um, children to have gone into it. But it's um, it yeah it it also provides a good income. Um, coal miners are generally pretty well paid, but also they they are well paid because it is dangerous. There aren't too many jobs where you go and there's a chance that you might not come home. So. No. And there's yeah. a huge history. We all know the history of the coal miners who had to strike and they've been locked out all over the world. And even now in China, you hear about these mines collapsing and very many deaths. So I know that it's high, highly responsible sort of work. But we're in this discussion now because we're all aware of this, the writings on the wall for coal. And yet a lot of people are still employed in it and getting good jobs. And I wonder how the miners that you know who are perhaps younger and just starting out even or in their 30s how, how do they feel about the industry do they still feel it's got a good future um it's interesting i've talked to a variety of people about it um a lot of a lot of them are clinging on to uh okay i might have 10 years left or i might have 20 years left or i might have five years left which I think they're seeing as an interim period, or some of them just think it will go forever as well. Uh, um, but uh, I was talking to someone the other day about it, and we were talking about how people these days uh, in their approach to their work are different to, like when I went to work, I started in 75, which is last century. And they, they don't necessarily necessarily see the job that they start in as the job they're going to finish in or or that that career they might change careers two or three or four different times so um i don't think they necessarily see that as a as a big problem that they will change jobs because it's a mindset that they've probably gone in with um there are people who still think it will last forever and i think um they're the ones who are really going to suffer because they won't do anything to um, upskill or to look for other opportunities um, because coal mines are going to shut. They are. That's just a that's just a fact. Whether or not it's because 
um, philosophically as a country we change our thoughts um, or it's because the rest of the world has changed and the rest of the world is going to renewables and they will stop buying our coal and yeah, well, given that the majority of the down. coal in Australia is exported, yeah, yeah, so there won't be jobs, and then then we've got to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. well, I know um, Port yeah. Kembla exports about eight million tons a year of coal, but it's metallurgical coal used for steel making, and the big Port Kembla steel yeah. making is what I'm interested in, and when. We have this off. I'm just going to say when we have the offshore wind, because I'm sure it will happen. But there's probably some obstacles <laughs> in the way. But when it happens, when that gets going, there's going to be gigawatts of energy pumping out of that wind farm. Um, how will yes. the steel makers transition to that green steel? That's that's pretty easy for them because um, that'll be the way I see it. That'll be on the job training, so they will. You know, they work in a particular blast furnace now and their job is, is I don't know, melting all the, the steel. Um, that will still be the same. They will just um, just have some on-the-job training, you know, site-specific or job-specific type training. But if if you're already employed there, I would think that um, that, that employment will stay pretty similar. Um, at most jobs like that, most industrial-type jobs, um, there is... Um, constant on-the-job training and upskilling yeah. well, that's because good as that. technology changes, you need to yeah. keep up with it. Yeah. yeah. That's, oh, that's really heartening to know that because, you know, I think the mm. media often gets in this sort of big black and white, you know, death or survival kind of wording. But as you say, there's ongoing training and people, are they're not, they're not putting their head in the sand. They know what the future is. So that green steel, yeah. I know it's going to be expensive at first, but if that transition happens, it could be a huge opportunity for, you know, for profit making for the people like the Blue Scope Steel. But um, uh, miners on average earn around, I read it up this morning on a website, they said about $76 an hour, some can earn $200,000 a year. And I wonder if the new jobs are going, if you phase out the coal mining, are they going to be able to get jobs of, you know, such um, high wages again? I don't think so. Um, I, I read a um, an article where they said the average job was skilled-type workers or people who um, bring some sort of skill, whether that be a trade or an engineering degree or you can drive really big machinery, there was still skills. Um that there are about eighty thousand dollars a year, which is pretty good money. Um, and the great advantage of that is that you're not going to go to work and have the mine explode or get crushed by a huge piece of machinery. Um, so, no, they won't. They probably won't get the money that sort of money. But that's they'll get a lot more than if they're on the dole. So, yeah. well, you know, well. And, and yeah. presumably there'll be a transition plan. You know, like in Germany, they transitioned and they were famously saying not one person left behind. So people will be, you know, diversified maybe. And some, oh, Martin Cubby said to me, oh, there's a lot of electricians work in mines. You know, the electricians can just transition to other places in the in, in the manufacturing. Yeah. Um, well, look, this group, Good for the Gong, and lots of other groups, they have lots of events, you know, to uh, notice in your area they have um, fun days and there was just there's, this week there's one with Saul Griffiths giving a public talk on harnessing the energy transition. Mm. But how do you 
had all the pushback. Apparently, there have been people coming to those meetings, very rude, interrupting, and they're presumably representing the fossil fuel industry who don't want to change. Um, how do you handle that? Or in the community general, the people who are resisting this? Yeah, I think one of the really big problems with that is that the people who are opposed to it are very vocal um, and they get fired up by whoever is firing them up. And so when you have an event, they they come, if they, if they wish to disrupt it, they can really easily because they just are really, really noisy. Um, I, and I think that's one of the great problems in that if you look at, say, the wind farms that were, were they're proposing to put off um, Longong. What we should be doing is saying, okay, if that's going to happen, because we need renewable industries, um, we need to make sure that they're installed best practice design, best practice environmental impact studies, see whether or not they're fit for purpose, see whether or not they will fit what we require here. And then if they don't, well, then you don't do them or you modify them. But to go in with the idea that, no, we don't want them because the whales will run into them or a bird will run into them, sort of, and we want a pristine coastline, um, strikes me as just um, being a little bit narrow-minded. It's, yes, we need to protect the whales. Yes, we need to protect the birds. But we also need to protect our future as a country and our future as workers. So if you say there's no wind no wind turbines off here. Where do fossil fuel industry workers go to? They, there is nothing for them here to go to, and that's a real problem. So we've, we just had a coal mine shut here and best part of 200 workers are now at work, and there is nothing for them to transition into because um, we spent 10 years with the government who did nothing on renewables, and now we've been, we're getting a lot of pushback from... Um, communities about establishing renewable industries. And if we don't establish renewable industries, there won't be jobs for these people to go into. They just won't. They just don't appear. Mm. Um, and that's a brilliant way for people who are in fossil fuel or in any industry, actually, uh, um, to to have jobs for the future because that's where the future will be. Yeah. And if it's not here, it'll be somewhere else. Hmm. True. Well, look, finally, um, Daryl, a, a child born this year will be 75 at the end of the century, so I'll be dead. <laughs> but your region is playing a big part in his or her future, whichever way you go. You know, what are the most important things that a region like that, rich in coal, rich in everything going for renewable energy and, you know, skills and all of that, and all the grid connections. What What's the most important thing, you think, to speed up this process? To actually work together as a community. Um, I, I, I've talked to a lot of climate activist-type people who went and protested outside of coal mines, and they said, so what would the workers have thought? And I couldn't actually tell them what the workers would have thought because <laughs> it wasn't great. And then I've talked to um, coal people who just very bury their heads in the sand or bury their heads underground or just pretend that it's not going to happen because they say the Greens are all, they're the ones who are stopping our jobs, but they're actually not. They're the ones who are actually looking at different jobs for people to transition into. We need to work together. And if we don't work together, we'll just continually be divided. And that's not a good thing. Governments 
governments have been really, really poor at this so far. They haven't done enough. They, the ones who were in the last 10 years, they didn't care and they just wanted to promote their mates. The ones who are in now are so scared of Murdoch media, putting them out at the next election. So they need to work hard. But so as a community, we need to show them that we're united in this. And so then they will have the courage to do it. And so communities need to do that together. And if we don't do it together, it'll just be a constant battle and it'll put it back another five years or another 10 years. And I have three adult children and about to be four grandchildren, and I don't want to see them having a future that's awful because we didn't do enough work now to make it happen. I think that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for being yeah. a spokesman for that point of view and um, and good on you for this um, good for the gong idea. It's a very positive um, name and I know there's a lot of groups feeding into that. Thank you very much. Thanks. We've been talking to Daryl Best. Mm. He's an ex-coal miner from Wollongong and I think he's given you an insight that you might not have got if you'd gone there picketing a miner a few years ago. He's told us what, what he really thinks. Thanks, Daryl. Thank you, Vivian. Thank you. Now here is Robert Farmer singing The Coal Owner and the Pitman's Wife. Dialogue I'll tell you is true as me life Between the coal owner and the poor pitman's wife She was travelling all on the highway to the coal owner and this she did say Derry down, 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 Derry down Good morning Lord Firedam, the woman did say Now don't be alarmed, sir, don't be afraid For if you've been where I've been the most of me life You'd never turn pale at a poor pitman's wife Derry down, 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 Derry down And where do you come from? The coal owner cried I come from hell, the poor woman replied If you come from hell then come tell me right plain How you contrive it to get out again Derry down, 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 Derry down The way I got out sir, the truth I will tell They're throwing the poor folks all out of hell This is to make room for the rich wicked race For there's a great number of them in that place Derry down, 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 Derry down And how does the devil behave in that place? Sir, he is cruel to the rich wicked race He is far more crueler than you can suppose 
just like a mad bull with a ring through his nose. Derry down, 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 Derry down. If you be a coal owner, take my advice. Agree with your men and give them a fair price. For if and you do not, I know very well You'll be in great danger of going to hell Very down, 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 very down Kristen MacDonald from Rewiring Australia is part of a local Wollongong group called Electrify 2515. That's the postcode for Austin Mere, not far from Wollongong. And you might have heard Dr. Saul Griffiths talk about it as a model for the nation. So welcome, Kristen. What happened when you launched that project to get 500 households fully electric? Well, I was part of a, a small group of local citizens who are really um, passionate about climate action. And when we heard about Saul's vision for creating an all-electric suburb to try and test out um, the technicalities and the social impacts of electrification at scale, we decided it would be interesting to see if we could actually ha make that happen in our own local area. Yeah, so we got busy and we started trying to put the word out and we were really pleased that there was a great response from our community um, that they might be interested in, in taking part in a potential pilot project. That was almost a year ago now, um, and we had a really great response. We we set ourselves a target of um, getting 500 people to express their interest in three months, and we got that in a couple of days. And oh. we've actually we've actually got about 1,500 people who oh. have, who are interested. That being said, it was a, a year year ago and it's been a very long process um, trying to both design the project and risk try and apply for funding um, and so this last year has been really in the depths of that and then we're hoping that we might get some sort of word on um, financial uh, backing soon sometime this year and if so then we would need to kind of put the word out again to our community about who's serious about signing yeah. up because there's one thing to express interest and there's another who actually want to be one of the participants. It's been both exciting and challenging. It is hard work. I remember interviewing the people at Hepburn Wind down in Victoria and the man there, he said, honestly, we could have put up a nuclear power plant with the effort of just getting this yes. wind turbines in this small town. So, you yes. know, the first movers like yourselves are really the very, very heavy lifting for a while, but good on you. Yeah, our oh, Hepburn winds have um, really paved the way for a lot of groups like ours mm. to try and do something big. So I, yeah. I'm a big fan of this. <laughs> well, it can be a big upfront cost for people when they think of going off gas, going off petrol in their car, going off the grid, which is fueled by fossils. But if 500 different sorts of houses do it together, what kinds of subsidies can they get? To be honest, um, the level of subsidies haven't been determined yet because it really depends on how much funding we might be given to work out how many subsidies we can kind of carve up that pie, if that makes sense. And it is a very complicated process because, as you said, there is um, everyone is quite unique, every household is unique, and part of the um, purpose of this project 
is not just to say, you know, do the easy route of, you know, if we were all building new houses, it would be quite easy to have them electrified. But you know, most Australians live in existing housing. And so what we're facing is a retrofit project at scale. And every house is different. There's some people are already halfway electric, some people are yet to do anything. And so it would depend a lot on the type of household someone has, is living in, uh, what type of existing appliances, what they might be transitioning to. Um, so all of those considerations would come into before we um, work out what potential subsidy someone could access. But the idea is that the subsidy would be attractive enough that you get um, 500 odd people who would be willing to kind of bring forward their own electrification of their house. And, you know, this would require an investment from them because it wouldn't be a full subsidy. So yeah, but the idea is that we need to try and do this quickly and at scale um, in a concentrated area to really understand um, what uh, learnings we can take from this. Yeah, well, I read that the Energy Minister, Matt Keane, from New South Wales Parliament, he was then the minister, he came down to Thoreau a few years ago with $8 million to help you install, it said mm. in the article, zero emissions appliances. Has that has that offer gone on or is it starting to happen? No, that was uh, a roller coaster of emotions, Vivian, oh. because yes, we got the then Treasurer and Energy Minister Matt Keane commit to and put forward this eight million dollars. And we we didn't necessarily have it in the bag, but we just thought we were going to be in a good place to apply for it. Um, and then it was just before a state election and that uh, government lost. And so the new change of government decided, to use that money differently within the energy department. And so unfortunately, that was no longer on the table. We've been focusing on um, applying for funding through the Australian Renewable Energy Agency arena. Oh, good. Yes. And that's um, that's the long kind of process that we're, we're partway through. Well, that's what they're set up for. So let's hope that works. Yes. I wish there was a big shop, you know, with heat pumps and solar panels and energy efficiency gadgets and batteries all in one big sort of Bunnings warehouse kind of place mm -hmm. and you could go there and talk to people who know about it and hum and har about the prices and work out who would install it and just make a decision there you could make a decision on each thing uh, as your budget could permit it but it seems to me the public are a bit it's all a bit in the dark it's all on the internet and you have mm. to drill down you have to know someone who knows someone and the stories around I don't think it's front of mind enough do you, do you agree with me or what can you do to make that more easy I think easy. your idea of a, a one-stop shop is wonderful and um, I know Ireland for instance has gone down this route of the actual the federal government there is funding one-stop shops um, to oh. essentially do what you're saying to provide support for households um, yeah. to retrofit their houses yes it, it is um, it is a kind of concern because even if people are interested in electrifying their homes, there's a big kind of gap between knowing that they want to and knowing how to. And mm. we've found actually a lot of at Rewiring Australia, a lot of the um, uh, kind of gap is being filled by community groups. So groups such as Electrify 2515, but there are hundreds of groups around the country um, because they kind of feel that that need of we need sort of trusted local sources of information um, that aren't sort of going to try and do a hard sell on a particular 
product on us. And that's not necessarily the answer, but it is definitely being at least helpful for some community members to try and um, overcome that decision anxiety, I guess, and yeah. to understand how to go about it. But more more assistance that sort of handholds people through the process would be really valuable. I also think just generally the more people who do it, the more it gets done because we talk to our neighbours and you're at the pub and or do you know a good electrician and and that there's a real um, kind of roll-on effect there that happens through that kind of social sharing of information as well. Yeah, well, when your postcode is the model place to go, maybe you can have open days and people can all come down the city. But I do think in the city, in the, in the mainstream, among all the other commercial shops, you should find this information. Like you say, in Ireland, that will be fantastic. Oh, and, mm. and it's good to admit that it's hard because we think, oh, why don't people mm. take this up more quickly? But it's, it is because it's quite hard. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Harvey Normans and Bonnie yes. and um good guys of our society actually become climate advocates and only and and refuse to stop their gas appliances and then become a bit of a um <laughs> a helpful service as well, well that would yeah. that'd, that'd be nice that's an avenue for protest actually protesters listen to this show and maybe they can go and do wonderful please places. start a campaign <laughs> listen um the offshore wind farm just along the Illawarra coast it's really a wonderful big project and I mm -hmm. think it will happen. Surely it will happen despite local opposition. Um, it's going to supply gigawatts of clean energy. Why is this so good for the gong? Well, um, Vivian, we know that to um, address the climate crisis, we need to drastically reduce our carbon emissions. That's obviously nothing new for your listeners. Um, but one of the most effective ways to do that is to transition off the fossil fuel supplied energy sources to um, clean renewable sources. And one of the best sources of the, that power is offshore wind. They're, they're incredibly um, big power generators. They can actually compete with taking some of those large power generators like um, coal fire power stations offline um, and so there you know there can be a bit of a like-for-like like replacement there and and they can address some of the um, power needs we're going to need for things like um, cleaning up our uh, manufacturing supply of energy so we need big renewable energy projects we also at rewiring Australia we're huge advocates of more distributed energy resources we you know we think that we can be gaining a lot from maximizing for instance rooftop solar around Australia but but unfortunately, that's not going to do it all. Solar, solar and batteries aren't going to do it all. And so we do actually need um, big wind projects too. And we've got amazing resources, both for solar and wind in Australia. We truly are the, the lucky country. And so we have the opportunity to have these um, cheaper and advanced kind of sources of um, energy that actually are clean and effective. So beyond the emissions and the power generation capacity, there's going to bring a whole sorts of um, wonderful opportunities for our local community. There's thousands of jobs to be held, both in the construction, but also the maintenance of these um, of this uh, wind zone. There's going to be all the secondary industries created um, off that. So, you know, the catering and the um, local kind of other local economy opportunities. Then there's going to be other kind of um, opportunities that we can start thinking about community benefits from actually from the renewable energy developer. So whether we can create some sort of community benefit fund that the developer pays into. And we worked out um, if 
for instance, one cent per um, kilowatt hour was paid into a local community um, fund, we'd be raising over $125 million every year. Mm. And if you could think of all the things that we could be spending with over $100 million a year to benefit our local community, that's a, a fantastic opportunity. Um, so there's there's clearly a lot of economic, there's a lot of social um, opportunities that come with a project like this. The other thing is it just makes sense. We, we're an industrial area. We have large scale kind of manufacturing in our local area. We've been, um, you know, grown up with the steelworks right beside us and big kind of coal mines. And this is, this is something that we do. We have the infrastructure in place. We have a workforce in place. So it makes sense that it, it can happen here. And it's also a, um, a windy area. So, but it has to be done responsibly. And that's something that we advocate for. And this has probably been the biggest source of tension within the community is they're concerned that there might be um, unforeseen impacts. So, you know, we're, we're really supporting like a, a rigorous environmental impact assessment um, phase and, and other components of the process to be done well. Um, but yes, the, it's, I think it's exciting, but, you know, to be honest, it's, it's difficult with the community divided and confused about any new sort of giant project is, is challenging and um, there's a lot of questions to be answered and that's part of what we're trying to do. Um, I'm also work, volunteering with the local volunteer alliance called Good for the Gong and one of the things we're trying to do is sort of address some of the questions or the areas that people aren't so sure about. Um, so providing talks with experts or um, things like that, because as you all know, there's also been a lot of kind of misinformation and disinformation kind of running wild. So hopefully oh, there's yeah. some people can get some informed information as well. Yeah, I uh, spoke to someone else who said it's like a well-orchestrated campaign that they've brought from North America where they're also having wind farms proposed and they have the same frightening images and frightening messages and it's all well well honed. So mm. you're up against it, but good on you. You're the best of civil mm. society. That's what you're just a grassroots group and now you make it into a, a proper established group, but really that's hard work and, and good on you. Oh, thanks. I, it's not, it's one, one of many who are just passionate about um, seeing change. And, and to be honest, we can't do it unless all community members who are concerned about our future do act in, in some capacity. So um, I'm thankful that I'm surrounding myself with those who are committed to creating that change, just like yeah. you and all your listeners. So, you know, right. you, we couldn't do it without you and anyone who else is advocating for for creating positive change. Yes, that's right. Thank you. We've been talking to Kristen McDonald uh, down in the Illawarra, and she's part of a group called Rewiring Australia and Good for the Gong. Now here is Meraki May. Their song comes out of the experience of climate change witnessed in the Lismore floods last year. Their song is called Warrior. Thousands of students across Australia will join millions around the world striking for the next action on the change. We are the voices of nature. walk with me all along the red hot ground. The sea slowly rising, we're slowly dying underneath the red hot sun. Come, little darling, walk with me all along the red hot ground. 
to Wollongong in New South Wales. There's a group called Good for the Gong and they think a renewable energy zone with lots of offshore wind turbines would be good for the gong. So Martin Cubby was introduced to me as a dad locally but he is also the NTEU organiser for Wollongong University. So welcome Martin. First of all what's the weather like today down at Wollongong? Well hello Hello and, and thanks for having me on, Vivian. Uh, it's it's a rainy day in Wollongong, but uh, the wind is blowing, and that's something that we would like to take advantage of here to to help drive the big transition that's happening and is necessary. Okay, sketch for us what a wind farm project would look like. Where would it be? What workers would be needed, and what sort of investment is expected? Well, I'm. I am just a dad in Wollongong, but I've also been concerned and active around climate for um, uh, a couple of decades now. So living in Wollongong and wanting to see climate action when there was this uh, proposal to have a large-scale renewable energy project um, off the coast of the Illawarra uh, announced, going back a a year or so now, um, it was quite exciting for me. Um, The project, as it's proposed at the moment, would take up a, a reasonably large area of off the Wollongong coast. At the moment, slated to be about 10 kilometres off the coast. Uh, and that's uh, similar to um, other proposals. And there's ones around Gippsland, up and down the East Coast and elsewhere around Australia, uh, is to have a renewable energy zone in which companies, international, local, whomever, can bid to construct uh, large-scale offshore um, wind turbines, which are big structures, um, and up to 300 of those, I understand, is possible within the sited area of the Illawarra coast, and that has the capacity um, to generate enough power to power 3 million Australian homes. And obviously, we, we use that as a, a marker. Obviously, a, a lot of that power, we would hope it would, would go to industry and, and other things separate from domestic use. 
So it, it's a big proposal. Um, it's one of the larger ones that's been proposed or talked about in Australia. It's comparable with other large scale um, and, and a little bit smaller than other large scale offshore wind proposals happening or, or uh, already in operation around the world as well. But it is a new thing for Wollongong. Uh, I, I suppose your question was also about jobs. At the construction phase, what we're told, and, and part of we're involved in this is to find out as much as we can and make sure that there's the best outcomes for community, but there's thousands of jobs, potentially around 3,000 jobs that could be linked with the construction phase, um, which at the moment is slated, in my view, in my personal view, too far away, but to commence in 2028. Um, uh, and then ongoing roles, uh, particularly with maintenance and uh, maintenance ships and crews going out to maintain uh, the offshore wind farms, uh, around a thousand jobs ongoing. So, so for us, you know, Sydney, the size of Wollongong, which is about two, three hundred thousand people spread along the coast. It's a substantial project and also with a good amount of ongoing uh, good, hopefully good union jobs connected to the, the project. Yeah. Well, Greenpeace says there has been escalating disinformation voiced seemingly in defence of whale migrations. Now, I know this is a wonderful thing and your children probably would know about the whale migrations. It's the most beautiful thing off that coast. And so now suddenly people are starting to say this is going to interrupt that. And I've heard about local meetings very rudely disrupted by these people, like noisy, angry. Um, who are they? Like, where's the opposition coming from? Well, that, that's a good question. And that's one of the reasons that for the gong was established to attempt uh, where we can to counter some of that and make sure that decision makers but also others in the community know that not everyone is opposed to this because in the initial stages when the first announcements came uh, around August of last year there was a huge upsurge particularly online of uh, people saying this is the worst thing ever this is going to ruin our lives and, and, and that is that is ongoing um, who they are, uh, as far as we can find out, uh, a lot of the people involved, as per some larger community meetings or consultation meetings um, that, that were well attended, are locals. So the people who genuinely uh, reside here, some have genuine concerns. Some of the concerns, are, you know, have legitimate questions about how this is going to happen. What are the number of jobs? You know, legitimate questions to ask, questions we're, we're asking ourselves. Um, however, it does appear to us that some locals and then also some external bad faith actors have really tried to influence the local debate. Um, and some of them uh, getting information and resources from uh, fossil fuel funded sources and I mean, if your listeners are interested, they should look up information in, in relation to the Atlas Network and their work in terms of commissioning and producing resources to oppose uh, renewable energy projects. And a lot of that, that is happening, particularly on the east coast of the US, where there's big offshore wind farms proposed or happening there, seems to be pretty well replicated in terms of the opposition. And, and the same, you know, fake research, we would say, and... Yeah. Uh, dubious claims around whales, et cetera, is being reproduced and, and fed to the local community here and, and has been unfortunately picked up by a, a lot of local people. 
and I believe Australian politicians too. We did a program on this Atlas Network back in November with, um, I think it's Simon Walker in um, UTS University. Might be not Simon, I forget his name, but Walker, David Walker, maybe. Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah I think you're right. Yep, yep. Yeah. Sure. And, and so the politicians get into this. They can see where there's blood to be drawn in a community where they can be divisive and apparently... Barnaby Joyce and Peter Dutton are actually getting involved in this at the federal level. So it's it's very, dis uh, well, I hope you're not discouraged. This is good for the gong. It's a big community coalition of many, many groups, um, family groups and all sorts of professional groups. So I hope you keep your courage up because that sort of opposition has been faced before. I remember the wind turbine sickness that we used to worry about, you know, about four or five years ago. And these people were well organised. They'd go and break up any meeting where the wind fell. Anyway, where the consultations were going on. Martin Kirby was introduced to me as a dad locally, but he is also the NTEU organiser for Wollongong University. Look, I think a lot of listeners might genuinely actually be confused. Um, offshore wind is common in Europe, but it's new here. You know, it's not really something we've seen. So people have ocean views. It's a beautiful place to live. And a number of people who are lucky enough to, to own homes with ocean views in Wollongong um, were part of that initial pushback. Um, but that went quite pretty quickly when... Um, Everyone else who cares about climate action and has genuinely understood the science in relation to why we need to act said, hey, well, that's just a NIMBY point of view. And so that that uh, negative response has quietened down as a reason to oppose, which, which is a good thing because it's a ridiculous argument. Personally, um, I will be very pleased to see wind farms in the far distant horizon offshore because they have a huge capacity. The technology in and of themselves, capturing that consistent flow of offshore wind is one of the key assets, along with large amounts of solar that Australia has compared to other um, countries who really want to um, take climate action, but their ability because of the way their country is, is located or their population densities, it's quite hard to find land or available spaces or... The, the wind resource that we have off our, our east coast. So we have a huge opportunity with that natural, clean resource to harness it. Um, in relation to why we need to do it, I mean, I, I won't bore your listeners and I'm not a climate scientist, but really if you if you understand the scientists, and I never say believe, believing something is different than um, understanding something, but understanding the scientific science around climate, if we want to save our planet and have a, a, a good and better future, for our kids, we really need to act within the next six years. Yeah. Um, and in Australia, we have a huge opportunity to do that. Offshore wind is a huge part of that um, because not only do we need to replace coal, oil and gas, we need to have more electricity generation than we're making at the moment uh, to do things like run electric vehicles and electric fleets and also electrify a huge amount of industry and other parts of our economy apart from just our domestic homes. Yeah. So offshore wind, if built out on the East Coast, is a huge opportunity to have a large, consistent, clean energy supply uh, going directly into our grids that we can then obviously use for the to get off coal, oil and gas, which is the urgent need if, if, if we're to have a safe climate future. Well, I'm John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council. I'm here to say that community radio, 3CR, what an awesome role you play 
in getting the truth out to people who need to know at a counterpoint to the mainstream media. Keep up the great work. Listeners will remember uh, some time back, I interviewed someone from the MUA and his job was going out supplying the oil rigs off Western Australia. And he told me that every time they were really, it was really a horrific thing because there were these dead fish all around the oil rigs because of the chemicals they used. And he said he'd do anything to transition his job into supplying wind farms, you know, maintenance for wind farms. And he and he it just really hurt him, the the implications of his job. I wonder, do you, the unions in this area you are, the Illawarra, it's coal, coal country, it's steel mills, it's you know, it's it's traditional industries down there. How um, how's the transition going among the union thinking? Can you tell me some anecdotes or what are union people talking about? Sure. The Maritime Union of Australia have been fantastic, as have all the unions in Wollongong. And we, we do call ourselves Union Town. We still have one of the highest densities of union membership compared to other regional cities and, and capital cities compared to population. We have run the argument locally as community activists, along with, with uh, unionists, that the transition is necessary to maintain those industries. There's a, a term which others may have heard of being carbon constrained. So as the world, and it is happening, moves to uh, clean power and to, to get up coal, oil and gas, industries that are heavily reliant on things like coal, steel works being one of them, has a real risk of becoming an Australian asset that it no longer has the ability to operate using fossil fuels. There are alternatives and transforming steel to things like hydrogen, electric arc furnaces is expensive and it is really difficult. But that debate and that process is starting to happen in Wollongong. It should have happened 10 years ago, but it's happening now. And delegates on the shop floor uh, at Blue Scope, the, the, the steel works at Fort Pembler, um, and in a bunch of other industries and in our universities and in our, our schools with the teachers fed um, are all having conversations about what the future of Wollongong is going to look like. And the conclusion is, and, and hence the name of our group, is that the transition is going to be good for the Gong. It's going to be more jobs in clean industries and the opportunity to make sure that they're good unionised jobs as well. Um, and not seeing industries die and fail because they're still relying on, on, on fossil fuels. Yeah. So how, that, that transition is how consciously are the universities or your university, how consciously are they gearing up for the training new new skills for that uh, future? Well, they, recently um, they have received a $10 million grant to help run that and employed some staff to, to help that discussion locally, but also looking at the national perspective in relation to transitions. Uh, a lot of that does have to be focused on TAFE. And for our, our, our coal miners, which is still an important part of our local economy, um, the understanding there, with, with the support of the local coal mining union, which is a very mature um, and progressive and welcome position to take, um, for some time now there has been a discussion at, at the pithead, but also in, uh, in union meetings on the ground in town about how we need to make sure that things like TAFE are properly funded tooled up and able to provide the transitional opportunities out of the mines as eventually they, they look at closure through to jobs, good jobs in the renewable sector, um, rather than just people being told, you know, the mine's shutting and there's no work next week. Oh, so yeah. There's, there's still hundreds of 
um, workers who rely on the mines industry uh, locally, mainly supplying coking coal to the steelworks. Um, they all want to be part of trying to get steel, Australian steel, into the wind farm construction, which is a bit of a battle we're in at the moment, trying to make sure the federal government agrees to that. Um, uh, as part of that that conversation as well as with mine workers, there's a bunch of electricians who work down mines, obviously, um, and, and a whole bunch of those electrical trades and other trades do have pretty transferable skills with a bit of assistance and guidance. We're really hopeful the Australian Net Zero Authority, a new body set up by the federal government, plays a role in that. They've been a bit quiet in our view, so we want them to come out and be a bit more supportive of communities like ours as well to help you know, shine a light on the path to, to that transition. People don't want to just go and get a job as a barista if they've been working down a mine um, for 20 years, and that has a deep family history for people as well. So yes. a path to a good um, technical trades job, which which are there in the renewable sector, but that path still needs to be um, mapped out for people. Map, yeah, good. Well, just lastly, if you, you know, you were introduced to me as a dad, and if you think of your childhood dreams and what you saw the future to be how is it different from the future your kids can dream about it depends on what we do to get off coal oil and gas in the next five to ten years in australia and around the world and that's a huge challenge um i think it's possible it's certainly necessary if we don't do that collectively in our communities like we're trying to do and and, and push that agenda in wollongong um, and we don't, when we fail to do that around the world, uh, then we're looking at a situation where the, the threats from climate-related disasters, which we've already seen some of, are only going to get worse and more regular. Uh, we're going to see a huge impact on biodiversity and our ability to grow food. Uh, we're going to see a massive impact in terms of geopolitics, in terms of climate-related refugees and the impacts that that will have on uh, systems of government that are perhaps weaker than ours. Uh, and then that will domino effect on, onto countries like ours and a lot of um, bad faith actors might wanna take advantage of that politics as well. It was a sin on the past, but this has the potential to be at a scale that we've never seen before. Because of the speed of the heating of the planet that we're causing, Climate has changed in the past, but the speed of the heating of the planet that fossil fuels are causing now means that humans, as smart as we think we are, are going to struggle to adapt. So my preference and the preference that everyone I work with is let's not talk about adaptation. Now, let's get off coal, oil and gas. We can do it. We have the technologies, wind, solar, really good options for storage now. Um, there's no excuses, there's no reason not to act. And when we act, we find hope in our action. Um, that's what we want to be part of in Wollongong. And if we if we do that, and all the good people in the world who get it and want to be part of it are doing it, I think we've got a real chance of making sure we, we have a, a livable planet in, in 20 or 30 years. And that's the greatest motivation, I think, in the world to, to spend every, every spare bit of time we have to work with people in good faith to get a good outcome for our kids. How do you talk to your children about it? Um, they're probably sick of their mum and dad talking about it. <laughs> so we are cautious. I mean, I mean, my, my kids are beautiful. Uh, they have got up. I mean, my eight-year-old back in 2019 got up and made a speech at a, a, a kid's climate strike here in Wollongong. He still remembers that. They get it. They understand why we often spend weekends out, you know, 
doing actions and meeting politicians and doing all the things that, that we do as climate activists. They get dragged along to meetings that they don't want to be in. And, um, but they also understand that it's a, a big issue. And I would hope that they're proud that we're doing something rather than, you know, 95% of people who, who don't. Uh, and I don't know. I'm, I'm keen to ask them when they're 21 what they, they thought about what we were doing when they were sort of 10 and 12. So, um, and hopefully we've made some, some real progress by then. Thank you. It's been a, quite an honour to meet you. Thank you very much for talking and good luck with your uh, Good for the Gong campaign. And we maybe we'll come back to some other members from that group to give new as it goes along. When did you say 2028 is a possible starting point, did you say? That's what the government <laughs> is proposing, is that that would be the start of construction. Chris Bowen, the, the federal minister's announcement of the renewable energy zone. They announced one in Newcastle late last year. We're hoping to see that announcement soon. Once that happens, that's when companies, um, we prefer if it's all publicly owned, but, you know, that's another battle. Um, that's yeah. when companies um, would be able to start bidding, essentially, to, to be the ones that, that build the offshore wind. Okay, thank you very much. We've been speaking to Martin Cubby. He's the NTEU representative at Wollongong University, but more importantly, he's a dad and he's a member of this Good for the Gong group, which is trying to get offshore wind projects up off the coast of Wollongong. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. And for Sydney listeners, the Palestine Action Group Rally is on every Sunday at 1.30 in Hyde Park near the fountain. I've attended the rallies every week and they've been broadcast on 3CR each Saturday. And as I stand beside old women like me with tears rolling down their cheeks, I realise that action in solidarity with them is also climate action. If we can't have an expectation of life, free speech and a future, what hope can we have of arresting the momentum of climate change? Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Witnessing the community-mindedness of our three guests might inspire you to send the podcast to our politicians or drop them a line with the link. You can find it at climateaction3cr. Thank you tonight to Daryl Best, the ex-coal miner, Kristen McDonald from Electrify 7515 and Rewiring Australia, and thanks to Martin Cubby, a dad and a union man from the NTEU at Wollongong University. Thanks also to Babette and Adam, who send me encouragement so I know someone is actually listening. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night 
and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. Nadia Gunderman. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I belong.